Ephesians 2, we are in a series called Made and Crafted as we're looking through this book. And um, right here in chapter 2, in the middle of chapter 2, there's a huge turn in Ephesians. And the turn is about who we are as the church and how Christ is literally, how Christ is making or creating the church. And so I will read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and, um, and then pray a prayer of illumination. Verse 11. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at, at, that, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wow, that is so good. That is God's word. Let's pray for illumination from God. God, we want to pray that you would open up collectively, open up the eyes of our hearts that we would know you better. We pray, as Paul says here, that we, this specific church, would be a dwelling in which your spirit lives. Take not your spirit from us. Take not that special thing that happens when we gather where we all know that God is in this place. Please, please be with us, Lord. That's what we we desire is your nearness and you to come near a people. So however We need to get right in our own minds and our hearts for that to happen. Keep us from standing in the way of that. Keep me from standing in the way of that. Even now, may I become um, by your grace and by the anointing that comes from the spirit of the living God, may I become just a mouthpiece, a a messenger of the things that you want to say to the church today. And may we be quick to hear and respond to what the spirit might want to be speaking through me or even uh, uh, next to me or whatever. Just, Lord, speak today. That's what we pray. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. This section of scripture is all about walls. It's about how we build walls and how walls are torn down. Now, I appreciate that this has some political undertone with all the talk about building the wall between us and Mexico. But please know that the problem that I will be discussing today does not lie in our politics or whether whatever side of the fence you are on in that debate. But the problem is 
that all of us build walls. And here in Ephesians, it says that the walls we build are walls of hostility. So the problem really lies with us. We ourselves build walls of hostility. I mean, this goes all the way back to what Kanye West said years ago when he was still sane. <laughs> we are at war with terrorism and we are at war with racism, but most of all, we are at war with ourselves. The problem lies with us. So how, is, how, is that the, how are we the problem and why are we the problem? Um, what did Jesus do about this problem? And what can we do to become people that don't build walls of hostility? That's what I believe that our text teaches us today. So first, why is the problem us? Why are we the ones that are building walls of hostility? Well, Paul frames up this section by talking about Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And the wall of hostility is between Jew and Gentile. Now, if you're new to the Bible or new to this sort of language, the Bible neatly breaks up, and Paul especially, neatly breaks up the world into two people. Jews and Gentiles. That's how the Bible sees the world. Now, the Bible does give name and space to all people groups, every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's not, it's not as black and white as that. But when it, when it comes to the, the matters of faith, it divides Jew and Gentile up. A, a crass way of saying this, the way Paul says it here, is that there was the circumcision, which was uh, the, the mark of Jewish faithfulness. There's the circumcision, and then there's the uncircumcised people. And now between these two people, between Jew and Gentile, there is hostility. Why is there hostility? Well, the Jews um, were God's chosen people to be a light to the nations. Um, this is Abrahamic blessing. This is God calling Abraham the father of the Jewish people and giving uh, the Jewish people the Torah, the law, with all of its commands and regulations, as Paul says in verse 15. And the point of God calling a special people to himself, calling the Israelites to himself, calling the Jews to himself, is so that they would, they would practice and show the way of God. They would practice the law. They would practice Torah. And they would show the way to God. The bottom line is, though, they didn't do their call. This was, this, was, this was the year of biblical literacy that we talked about for most of the year last year. They didn't do their call. What was supposed to be a ramp into God's promises and the way God was reconciling the world through Israel became a wall of separation. Israel was supposed to be an on-ramp to God's promises and God's way. It was a gift. God chose Israel as a gift and they were privileged people. And it was, it was a gift given to them that they were supposed to give away. The language that um, is used in the Abrahamic blessing is you are blessed to be a blessing. Okay, you, I've blessed you so that you would bless the world. That's the language that when God called Abraham, that was the language. But the problem is they became a wall, keeping people out. And the chosenness and the law and the promise became basis, a basis for hostility towards non-Jewish people. So the Jews looked down on unclean Gentiles. Uh, the language that uh, uh, King David uses is un uncircumcised Philistines, right? That's kind of the language. They, they saw people that were non-Jewish, like an uncircumcised Philistine. You are, a, you are an unclean Gentile because of your failure to live according to God's standards. You're unclean. And we can't even be around you. You're so unclean. And the Gentiles despised the Jews for their particular practices that kept them separate from common society. And the Gentiles despised the Jews because they were despised by the Jews. That's kind of how it works. That because of the hatred that Jews had, they hated them right back. 
And this is how it works sometimes. And so all of this was an occasion for hate. Now, the reason why I say that this is all of us is because this is what we repeat all the time. We all do this. This is not just a Jew and Gentile thing. What Paul is trying to point out is that that wall of hostility is in all of us. We do this in our jobs and our social circles, our churches, our neighborhoods, our nation. And this is what we do. We build an identity on something. Being Jewish, being non-Jewish. We build an identity on something. Being male, being female. We build an identity on something. Something that's true about us. And then we find self-worth in our identities by looking down on other people to make us feel worthy. To make us feel better. To make us feel superior. To say, I'm not like them. I'm me. I'm not like them. And I'm looking down. Everyone looks down on someone. And this starts making us feel good about ourselves. And very soon it becomes the basis for our hostility towards someone else. Where we begin to despise this other group. We do this in various degrees. We do this in big national ways. This in small ways and just in like our apartment building. We do this in all kinds of ways. This happens around sexuality. For a long time, the straight community looked down on the LGBT community and said, you are not like us. And they looked down on them with hostility and pride and self-righteousness. And eventually, the LGBT community started to believe that and say, yeah, I'm not like you. And I'm proud of that. I have pride in my sexual orientation. And what happens between these two communities? Hostility. Now, I know that that's a very oversimplified way of saying it. But the point is still there. Hostility happens. You're not like me. I'm not like you. And they begin to despise each other. This is the root of racism. This is why racism happens. And not just racism between different races. There's even racism among the same race sometimes. And we look down on someone like, yeah, I might be this, but at least I'm not that. Uh, when, I, um, I first, when I moved here and started pastoring in San Francisco, just a couple years before I moved here, I found out that I was a quarter Asian. And I never knew this. I thought I was 100% Mexican. And I found out it was, it was, it was yeah, it was, it was what it was. Uh, it's a long story. I don't have time to get into that part. But anyway, um, I moved to San Francisco with this newfound information. And, um, and having uh, several, a lot of Asian friends here, I started asking cultural questions. And I would get into conversations with uh, friends here that were Asian about certain people. And then they would ask what, what, like, what ethnicity they are. And I go, Asian. They go, yeah, yeah, but which one? I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean, which one? And they would, they would go, well, where are they from? I'm like, oh, they're from wherever. You know, I would name whatever. They're, oh, the Filipino, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, whatever. And they would go, oh. What do you mean, oh? <laughs> this happens several times. They go, well, Dave, you have to realize that there's an order in, in the Asian culture. There's an order. I'm like, what, what, what are you saying to me? I don't, I have no idea. What are you talking about? And then they would start, they would do a list. Like, this, this, this is the order. And every time someone would tell me that the, the list was different, <laughs> like depending on what they were. Um, and I was like, who made up this order? And they're like, no one made it up, but you just know it. Everyone knows this order. One person tried to explain to me that it had to do with the descendants of Genghis Khan or something. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that's real. Every race and ethnicity has this. And even among itself, it has this. We do this with our politics as well. We do this even inside our politics, even inside our own party. We, we even do this around where we drink coffee. 
Like someone, has someone ever told you, yeah, let's meet at Starbucks? You're like, oh. <laughs> you're, you're one of those? Let's not, uh, no. You know, you do that. We, and it's, it, gets, it gets super silly and it gets really, really, really painful and dark. Like it hurt. It, sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's just plain funny. But we all do this. All of us, um, all of us set up dividing walls and eventually turn into hostility. Um, this is why there are such things as blogs and comment threads. It's all, this is what it's based on. If you didn't have if you didn't have this, you would not have blogs and you wouldn't have comment threads. Just would not, there wouldn't be, be interesting at all. A perfect example of this is the Pharisee's prayer in Luke 18, 11. A Pharisee stands before uh, God in the, in, the, in the temple and says, and he prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That's, that's, the, that's it right there. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. And what, what this is, is that we start, we start, we have an identity in something and we, we push it down to such a, a fundamental layer of who we are that we look down on everyone that's not like us. I saw a pretty horrible display of this in a religious way during our past election. I mean, just a horrible, ugly display. I mean, to be honest, at the beginning, uh, at the end of the year, I had to um, leave uh, social media for a couple months because I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, and I wanted to leave with a rant, but that would have <laughs> defeated the purpose of why. Anyway, so um, confession. Uh, where Christians on the, and this is, this, is where I, this is where I think is just horrible. Christians on the West Coast and the East Coast despised Christians in middle America for helping vote in Trump. Despised them. And even now, as I say that, you might be thinking something, something in you rises up to justify your own hostility, even now. Thoughts like, well, I don't even know if you can call those people real Christians. Or they might be, quote, evangelical, but I wouldn't call them followers of Jesus. These are the things that I heard a lot of during that time. See what you're doing? You're building walls. You want them built as well. We all do this. So the question is, what did Jesus do about these walls that we built? I'm going to read to you Ephesians 14 through 16, I mean 2, 14 through 16 again, because it's that good. This is what Jesus did. It says, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That is so rich. Notice first what Jesus didn't do. He didn't sit down with two parties to share how they are experiencing one another and making sure that they are heard and seen. That didn't happen. Not to say that that's not important. That is so important. That's actually the basis of a lot of hard work of reconciliation done today. There was a TED Talk about a couple months ago from Megan Phelps uh, Roper, a previous member of Westboro Baptist Church. Maybe you've seen this online. And she gave a TED Talk on um, why she left Westboro Baptist Church and how she left by having civil conversation over Twitter. Um, Westboro Baptist Church is a church that is notoriously picketing everything. They basically, their signs read, God hates, and then fill in the blank, everyone. Everyone. God hates everyone, basically. 
and they know the truth. They're basically, the way she says it is that this is the clean versus the unclean. They, Westboro Baptist Church, are the clean, and their job was to tell the world why they were unclean. So she talks about her exit from Westboro Baptist Church by engaging in conversation with people on Twitter. She said, what, happens, what happened was I started to engage in civil conversation, starting on common ground, that they were both human on Twitter. She did not expect this to happen. And then she started making friends there. And they started showing up to each other's rallies and showing up to each other's places. And she started getting to know them. And then they started to kindly point out the inconsistencies of her church's doctrine that lets go of so much hate. And then in the talk, she talks about how she slowly walked away. And then she gave four steps to make real conversation possible between people who don't agree. Four steps. She said this. She said, step one, don't assume bad intent. She says, assuming bad motives immediately cuts us off from truly understanding why someone believes as they do and we forget that they are human. So when you hear something, don't assume bad intent. She says, don't start there. She says, next, ask questions. She said, we can't understand where people are coming from until we listen. Questions are the way we can listen and it gives room for other people to speak. So ask questions. And she says, stay calm was the third one. She says, we think our, righteous, our righteousness justifies our rudeness. We think because we're right, we have the right to be rude. And it never helps. Stay calm. And lastly, she said, make the argument. She goes, we think our position is so right and so self-evident that we don't have to explain it. She's like, I don't have to explain my argument. It's right. And you don't get it. You're dumb. So we don't explain it. If it were that simple, she says, we would all see the same way. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like that. So do these things and then make your argument. And the, th the point is this. Yes to all of that. We need to be doing that. All of us as followers of Jesus, as just humans, we need to be doing this. I believe that Jesus embodied all of these steps in his interactions with those who hated him and didn't agree with him. I believe we must embody these same things as well when we, speak, when we seek to be reconciled with people who have hostile disagreement with us or us having hostile disagreement with them. But I would also say it's not enough. It's great. It's good. It's not enough. It goes after the mind and it helps us change our mind about people and we should change our mind about people. That is so important, but it's not enough to change our hearts. Our hearts need to be changed. If this was enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on a cross. He could have came and not just assumed, not assumed bad intent from the religious leaders and the sinners alike. He could have came and he could have just asked questions. He should have stayed calm and make the argument of a loving God and loving others is truly the way to have a real life. He could have done that. And he could have stopped there, but that's not enough. Jesus had to do something else. And guys, I want, I mean, I, all of those, uh, all those, those learning and listening exercises are huge. They're so important. But we also need something else. Jesus had to put to death hostility. He had to put it to death. He had to destroy hate. Jesus' body on the cross became a grave for hate. What this means is this, that Jesus takes away the tensions and the sins of communities, of people groups, of people at odds with each other. Jesus takes away these tensions by absorbing them, 
by carrying them, by transforming them, and not giving them back in kind. Jesus' death functions like a water purifier for the hate that divides us. Jesus Christ is a filter of sorts. Jesus took in hatred, held it, transformed it, and gave back love. Jesus took in bitterness, held it, transformed it, and gave back graciousness. Jesus took in curses, held them, transformed them, and gave back blessings. Jesus took in murder, held it, transformed it, and gave back forgiveness. What this means is that Jesus wasn't the only thing to die on the cross. Hate died when Jesus died. He died by hate to kill hate. That's what this is saying. Or as one spiritual writer put it, Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was a slayer too. That sentence is so good it makes me want to cry. But the slain was a slayer too. Someone write that down. I will pay for that tattoo. That is so good. But the slain, yes, Christ was slain, but that, the slain was a slayer too. He put to death hate. This is, this is why if you step back and look at the event of the cross, you will see both Jew and Gentile being responsible for his death. And their hatred for each other at the middle of his death. He absorbed their hatred. And then when he absorbed their hatred, he created a new humanity. Okay, guys, this is some heavy-duty matrix stuff here, if you remember that movie. Okay? This is so heavy. Just think about what, what Paul's saying here. He absorbed the hatred of two separate groups of people and then put their hatred to death. And then out of his, his body, his resurrected body made a new person. Just think about that. That's what Paul is saying has happened. He took in, absorbed their hate, absorbed, absorbed their, 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 their hostility, took it on both sides, on, on himself, absorbed it, died, and then came back to life again and created a new person out of the two people, a new person, a new humanity. Listen, Jesus took the hatred of these two divided groups, Jew and Gentile, and dies because of their hatred. And he takes it on. And then he creates a new kind of person. What Paul says here is he creates a new humanity. Christians, a generation removed from the Apostle Paul, spoke of themselves, Christians, they spoke of themselves as a third race. They, in their writings, would call themselves a third race or a new race. Meaning they're neither Jew nor Gentile. They're a brand new kind of human that Christ has made and we are a new humanity now. This is what it means when it says, when Paul says that Jesus makes peace. He makes peace. Jesus doesn't sit down between two people and have them get along and try to find common ground. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't try to make Jews more like Gentiles or Gentiles more like Jews. He makes a whole new group of people who are in Christ. And therefore, our fundamental identity is not race. It's not sexuality. It's not gender, it's not hobbies, it's not sports teams. Our fundamental identity is in Christ. I am a Christian first. That's what that means. I won't say it again. You guys know the rule. If you're going to try to clap, don't do it now. Just the rule going on. That's the rule. We only have like five rules in this church. That's one. This is what Timothy, Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says this about identity in Christ. He says, identity is a complex set of layers. For we are many things. Our occupation, ethnic 
identity, etc., all are all a part of who we are. But we assign different values to these components, and thus Christian maturing is a process in which the most fundamental layer of our identity becomes our self-understanding as a new creature in Christ, and along, along with all our privileges in Him. I just I don't think there's a better summary paragraph of what identity in Christ means than that. You are many things. You are a race. You are a sexuality. You are a gender. You are all of the past hurts and pains and all the hopes. You are all these things. And what we do at times is we go in between making these things the, like the fundamental identity of who we are. And what it means to be in Christ is that we're a new humanity, meaning the, the, who I am is a Christian. I'm a Christian. And then everything else flows from that. Everything else like comes under the uh, rule of that, the authority of that. Everything falls into line with that. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is the basis of Christian peace. We are in Christ. We are family. We have more in common being Christians than we have differences. Because being in Christ is the most fundamental thing. So let me say this to you. San Francisco Christian. You have more in common with a Christian from the Bible Belt than you do with the coworker you went to the women's march with. Think about that. You have more in common with the person that you might despise on Facebook from a Christian from the Bible Belt than you do with the coworker that you went to the, the, the women's march with. You're like, no, I have more in common with that person. No, no, not, not if you understand this. The, 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 who you are fundamentally changes when you become a Christian. You are a Christian first. You are a follower of Jesus first. The more you get that, the more you start to remember that your fundamental, no, your fundamental identity is in Christ before it is anything else. And we have a weird family. The, fa the, the church, Jesus' family is weird. And so I have weird siblings that live in other places. And I would imagine they think, we have San Francisco Christians and they are so weird. They probably do. You probably go and visit your family on the holidays and they're like, you're really weird. And I'm like, you're like, you're really weird. We have weird family, but we're first, we're first Christian. Lastly, what can we do to become people that don't build walls of hostility? Um, Daniel Berrigan was a, was a Jesuit priest, an anti-war activist, a poet, from the 60s, and he was interviewed once. And he was asked this question, where does faith live? Is faith more in the head or in the heart? And his, this was his answer, and this answer is PG-13, so just if you're under 13, close your ears. <laughs> is faith more in the head or the heart? And he said, it's neither. Faith is rarely where your head is at, nor is it where your heart is at. Faith is where your ass is at. Wow. What this means is this. <clears throat> Someone got it. <clears throat> Someone got it. <clears throat> Sometimes, what this means is this. Sometimes we don't like agreeing. Sometimes we don't think we can ever agree. We don't think, we don't feel like agreeing and we don't think we can agree. But we sit in reconciliation because we didn't make it up. Jesus made peace. He made it. I don't have to make it. He made peace. So what we have to do is take our, um, 
bottoms and sit in peace. Sit there and go, Jesus made peace and so we have to be at peace. We have to sit here and find it because he made it and we have to sit here and find it. I've been praying this Jesuit prayer of reconciliation this past week and preparing my heart even for this. And um, it goes like this. This is the, the prayer of, uh, of reconciliation. Lord Christ, help us to see what it is that joins us together, not what separates us. For when we see only what it is that makes us different, we too often become aware of what is wrong with others. We only see their faults and weaknesses, interpreting their actions as flowing from malice or hatred rather than fear. Even when confronted with evil, Lord, you forgave and sacrificed yourself rather than sought revenge. Teach us to do the same by the power of your spirit. And so in this world of division that we live in, I believe that we can be two things. And this is taken from Ronald Roheiser's book, Sacred Fire. He says you can become conduits or filters. In our world of division and hate, we can be conduits of that energy. And many of us are. When we hear hate, we see hate, we feel hate, we become conduits like an extension cord of that hate. And all it does is flow right through us and right back out of us. We simply channel that energy flow through us, all the division, all the hate, all the looking down on others who are different, all the people that are not enlightened as us Western Americans, all of that, well, we just channel it and we get into rage and it goes right through us out to others. Or we can be filters. By the power of the Spirit, we can be filters that don't simply allow things to pass through us. Rather, it takes in water that's full of toxins and full of dirt and impurities and it holds the toxins. And it holds the dirt and impurities inside itself and gives back only pure water. We can be a conduit of the, the, the division and the hatred that's in our world today, or we could be filters that take it in, that purify it through the, the life that we have in Christ, and then give out only pure water. This is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5, becoming ministers of reconciliation. There's a book called The Good Fight, How Christians Suffer, Die, and Rise with Jesus. And in this book, there's an interview with a civil rights worker who endured racial, racial hatred and violence for working for justice. And this worker was interviewed. And the interview went like this. And I only have the last part of it, so bear with me. And then it'll be on the screen, the last part of his quote. But the first part goes like this. The interviewer asks him, Is it, uh, isn't that a dangerous work that you are doing? It's true, he said. The hatred is vicious and the punishment is violent. Have you, been, have you ever been hurt yourself? Yes, I've been spit upon, beaten with fists, with pipes, with chains, and left a bloody mess. But you're pretty big. Weren't you able to protect yourself sometimes and fight back? And this is what he says. It's on the screen. Yes. At first I did fight back. And I made some of them sorry that they had ever attacked me. But then I realized that by fighting back, I wasn't getting anywhere. The hatred coming at me in those fists and clubs was bouncing right off me back into the air and it could just continue to spread like electricity. I decided not to fight back. I would let my body absorb that hatred so that some of it would die in my body and not bounce back into the world. Now I see my job in the midst of evil is to make my body a grave for hate. 
this is Paul's hope for the church, is that we begin to model the life that Christ lived, that our bodies become graves for hate, like Jesus' body was done literally, that we take this on ourselves. How do we do this, though? This takes a lot of resources. How do we do this? Well, we need a lot of support. We need a lot of community. We need a lot of prayer. We need a lot of um, uh, people walking through this with us because this is really, really hard work to do. But Paul asks us to start by remembering, verse 12. He says, remember that you were far off, that you were hostile, and that you were far off from God, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember how far off you were. This is, this is the, the Christian resource that we have like in our, in our, in our like being, in our soul, in our spirit. Is that we remember that we were once far off from Christ. All of us were. Even if you were near, even if you grew up in the church. That's why Paul says, you know, I preach peace to those who are near and those who are far off. There's some of us like, like, like myself that didn't grow up in church and I was really far off from Christ. But peace was preached to me. And there's some of you who were, who were born into the church. You're like, I've been a Christian ever since I was, you know, six months old or whatever. But you needed to preach peace to you as well because you were near, but you needed the peace of Christ. No one's, no one's exempt from this. We all need the peace of Christ. And we have to remember that we were afar off from Christ, but Christ brought us near. He makes peace. And this is what we have to remember. Now, as we move into a time of response, I'd like to reflect on this with you. Remember this with you because I want to be and I want our church to be this kind of people that, that live um, and see Christ for who he is and what Christ has done and become this new, this new kind of person, this new humanity that Jesus is talking about here. And as we enter our time in response, I want us to be mindful that we who call ourselves Christians were once far off until we were brought into the family of God. Many of us were brought in because of a family member or a friend or a coworker who invited us in. If we just right now just begin to even remember and reflect on as we pray who, who it is that told you about Jesus, who it is that brought you near to Christ. And what that does is it allows us to trace back a memory of like, I was once far off from Jesus, but he brought me near. And this person was a conduit of that. Or this person was a, was, was a, a way of, of bringing me to Christ. And so we want to be that. So let's pause and pray and hold in our mind for a moment the fact that we were once far off, but Christ has brought us near him. And maybe as we pause and pray, you need the nearness of Christ like never before. And I want to pray for you. I want to bring you before Christ and, and tell God that you really need him to be near you right now. Would you, would you pray with me as we close? Lord, right now, would you bring to mind the ways that you have brought us near? Bring to mind ways that you have brought me near, God. We remember right now your comfort, your provision, your protection, your grace, God. Even that, even more than that, Lord, would you bring to mind those who showed us the way? Those of us who brought peace to us? Those of us that, those people in our lives that 
maybe even absorbed our hatred, our questions, our anger towards you, God, who modeled for us empathy and compassion, people who suffered with us, who showed us practical care by meeting our needs, people who kept their word to us, who interceded on our behalf. And Lord, as you bring us back to a remembrance of that place of rescue, would you bring joy to us, the joy of our salvation right now? Would you draw us to your generosity and your heart to share the good news of Jesus, to be that in the world? Even as we reflect at the beginning of our teaching, as Easter approaches, Lord, how do we, how do we be a light to the people around us? Make not the privilege of being, being your, your people, let it not end with us. May we not look down on people, anyone in the city, anyone. Keep us from that, Lord, that, that hypocrisy, God. We were far off. Thank you for bringing us near, Jesus. I pray for anyone in here who is sensing right now, maybe for the first time or maybe coming back to you, that you are drawing them to you, that they might have hostility even towards you and you are breaking down that wall even now with your loving kindness. You're absorbing their hate, their anger, their frustration with you. You're absorbing it and you're putting it to death right now. Draw us in by your loving kindness, God. In Jesus' name, amen.